Well, good evening and welcome, and thank you for joining us for the first Wednesday Advantage evening session of the new year. I do trust you had a good and pleasant Christmas and a great start to the new year. For those watching on our live stream broadcast, thank you for being with us. And we have folks both here in the United States and overseas who watch us on Wednesday nights, and some record it and catch up later in the course of the week. So thank you for being with us. Now, we're beginning a new series of studies called Psalms and Proverbs, and you're going to need this introductory handout. If you don't have it, raise a hand, and we'll make sure that we get some to you. I think most, most folks have got it. Could you pass them out for me? In fact, there's another one, just in case someone wants to read it twice. And one over here. And thank you for those who found that funny. The rest of you missed it. Okay, anyone else? One more. Five dollars, any advance on five dollars? Good. Now, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Psalm 84, please, if you would, which is our scripture reading this evening. And we will be reading verses 1 through 12. And while you're turning that up, you will see there's an introduction to our study for the next few weeks on one side. And then there's dates and who is teaching when, and you will notice that we're beginning with a psalm, then next week it will be Proverbs, the next week it will be a psalm, and then Proverbs again, and this will take us through to, probably take us through January, February, end of March, and finish this semester, and please remember your papers are due in on the last Wednesday night of March, so please keep an eye on that. And for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, that was a joke, so you, can, so, so, so you can relax. Very good. Now, let's begin. Psalm 84, verse 1. We're not entirely certain who the author of Psalm 84 is. There's a little introductory note at the top, and we'll talk a little about that in the course of our study. But let's begin at verse 1. And the psalmist writes these words. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon your shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, as we gather this evening, we are still in these early days of 2023. We find it hard to believe that Christmas was not that long ago. New Year only a few days ago. And as we enter into a new year, we ask for your blessing upon our studies week by week. Open up your word to us. Grant to us a connection with you that is so profound that we cannot wait for another study to come. Because we've heard your voice. You've spoken into our lives. You have strengthened us and equipped us to live out our faith day by day. And Father, as we pray for ourselves this evening, we look around this room and we thank you for each other. Those whom we love, husbands, wives, good friends. And we ask, O oh God, that in the course of this year, may you indeed put your hand not only upon us, but all whom we love. For those children and grandchildren, some scheduled to be married later this year, some going off to college for the first time, great-grands going to school for the first time. And Father, we commit them to you, asking that you would indeed not only put your hand upon them, but draw them close to you. Grant to them maturity in their education. Help them to grow surrounded by good friends. And above all things, help them to grow in understanding and love for you. Now be with us, whatever our circumstance and situation this evening, and speak to us, please encourage us and equip us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The introductory material on your handout is fairly straightforward, so uh, let me uh, go over it with you. And in many ways, it is drafted to reflect what we're going to encounter over the next few weeks together. Down through the centuries, each generation of Christians seek to grow in their faith, has turned to the inspired poems of the Psalms and the wisdom literature of Proverbs, as they wrestle with the full range of human emotions and experiences. And my trust and prayer is that's exactly what we'll do over these next 12 weeks. Prayerfully and quietly laying themselves bare before the heart of God, they have learned what it means to engage with the practical lessons of Proverbs while enjoying the exalted heights of devotion and personal challenge contained in the Psalms. And that's what we're going to see this evening, those exalted heights of all that the psalmist has laid out for us in Psalm 84. Then I go on to say here, excuse me, let me pause right there. So Psalms one week, Proverbs the next week, as I suggested. And over the years, as I have gone back to the Psalms again and again, there is one quotation that I have enjoyed more than others. And it comes from an English Old Testament scholar called Derek Kidner. And at the beginning of his, I think it's two volumes he wrote on the Psalms, the first volume is 1 to 75, then 79 through 150, Kidner says this. About the Psalms, he writes, Here are mirrored the ideas of religious piety and communion with God, of sorrow for sin and a search for perfection, of walking in darkness unafraid by the lamp of faith, of obedience to the law of God, fellowship with the friends of God, reverence for the word of God, humility under the chastening rod, trust when evil triumphs and wickedness prospers, and serenity in the midst 
of a storm. And that in many ways encapsulates what we find in the Psalms. And it really is an outstanding book. Presbyterians have a great history of enjoying and delighting in the Psalms. And it is not by accident or chance that on a Sunday morning, when we have our call to worship at each of our services, we often find ourselves using the Psalms to remind us of the importance of worship and why we're there. And so the Psalms lend themselves to many different occasions. They have been read and chanted, sung, studied, memorized, wept over, rejoiced in, expounded, loved and praised by God's people for thousands of years. They were composed upon particular occasions, yet designed for general use, originally written from an Israelite background, yet no less adaptable to the circumstance of the Christian. The oldest psalm is 4,500 years old, the youngest 3,500 years old, approximately. Yet, despite their age and background, they contain some of the most memorized passages in all of Scripture. And so, by way of introduction, let me leave that with you, and we'll touch on this over the next few weeks till you get used to it uh, and are more and more familiar with it. But one of the questions I wanted to ask right at the outset this evening is this What will we encounter in Psalms and Proverbs? And I came across a quote from a lady a couple of weeks ago. I don't think she's a Christian writer. She may well be. I was just attracted to the quote. Her name is Victoria Erickson, and this is what she writes. She wrote, Transformation isn't sweet and bright. It's dark and murky, painfully pushing forward, an unraveling of the truths you've carried, a complete uprooting before becoming. I think most of us wish for transformation to be gentle and peaceful and kind and loving. But God is, let me see if I can put this in the most gentle way possible. God is rarely interested in cosmetic surgery. A little here, a little there. But often he reaches down deep and transforms us from within and he often calls for what we might describe as radical surgery and most of us don't like that because radical surgery is painful it wounds us it takes time to recover and yet we're usually healthier at the end most of you know I was out during September and October lollygagging after uh, some open heart surgery. And about three days before I went in, surgery was the Thursday. On the Monday, I met with uh, a couple of the prayer team upstairs, along with my colleague, Stan Johnson. And we were preparing. This was late September. September. <coughs> Excuse me. We were preparing for an event in December. And they said to me, Richard, we know you've not been feeling well recently. Can we gather round, put hands on you, and pray for you? I said, absolutely. And so they did. And then three days later, I had open heart surgery. So I saw them recently, and I said, stay away from me. Please don't ever pray for me again. I said, the last time you prayed for me, I ended up having surgery. And then I was teasing them a little more and said, now, I think you're on commissioning from Prisma. 
And henceforth, I'm calling you the Prisma prayer team. Uh, And they said, well, in fairness, we did pray that God would get to the root of the problem. And they did. And so I kind of backed off a little and we laughed about it. And I also said to them, incidentally, there's a passage in James, and we're going to come across it in Sunday mornings in the next few weeks. There's a passage in James that says, when you are ill, call for the elders to lay hands on you and pray for you. And so they'd laid hands on me on that Monday, and I said to them, look at my Bible. In the passage in James, I've taken a little, very narrow red pen, put a line through elders, and I've written in deacons. Because it's not working when the elders pray for you. Clearly that's not working. So deacons are going to be praying for me from now on. Now, for all my silliness, radical surgery is what's happening Wednesday nights when we make our way deeper and deeper into Psalms and Proverbs. And transformation isn't sweet and bright. It may cause us to challenge beliefs we've had for a long time, but don't quite articulate them. Because on Wednesday nights, when we gather with family and friends round a table, we are on our best behavior. And we would never open up what's going on in our hearts. At least on the dark side. On the blessings of God, his answered prayer, on his love for us, of course we will talk about. But those hidden deep recesses that we struggle with, what a previous generation of Christians used to call besetting sin, habitual sin, that we want to hold close. That's what's going on here. And so, complete uprooting before becoming. Let me ask some more questions as we move forward. What will we encounter in Psalms and Proverbs? It's not only what we will encounter, but who we will encounter. And the first is this. We will encounter God in every page of the Psalms and Proverbs. Let him be enough. Now that's easy to say on a Wednesday night, isn't it? It's a different matter entirely when you're sitting beside the bed of a loved one. And there is talk of terminal illness. Let him be enough. Secondly, don't idolize your feelings. Well, I feel strongly about this. Or I just want to say because I'm feeling... Be careful. Having been off for eight weeks, towards the end of week seven, Ruth was getting fed up with me being around the house all the time. I had a little bell. No, I didn't have a little bell. (laughs) But we were living in each other's pocket, minute after minute, day after day. Now, in those first few days after I came back from hospital, I could do nothing on my own. I couldn't sit down on my own. I couldn't stand up on my own. could do nothing. couldn't dress myself. And Ruth was there, ministering, praying, nursing. But after seven weeks, she was ready for me to get back to work because I was under her feet. And there was times she kind of looked at me and I thought, she wants to throttle me. Don't idolize your feelings. Because feelings are not always an accurate picture of who you are. They're an accurate picture of what you feel at that moment. Have your feelings ever deceived you? 
I know mine have deceived me multiple times. And here is the difficulty. When we cross the line and we say, God is telling me this. Really? Well, he has to tell it to everyone else before everyone else will agree with you. So please be careful about feelings. Helpful sometimes, no question. Healthy at times, but be careful with them. They can be deceptive. Thirdly, stop being a control freak. Anyone have that on the New Year's resolutions? Quit trying to please everyone. Not easy, especially if you want to be kind and engaging, especially if you want to be helpful. Let go of bitterness. The Apostle Paul, this one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind, I now press on. Honey, you always say, you never do. Let it go. Don't obsess about circumstance. If you can't control it, hand it over to the Lord. Now let me say that again, because we agree in principle and then we don't do it. If you can't control it, hand it over to the Lord and leave it there. I ordered a gift for our son Michael uh, from a company in New York uh, around the 10th or 12th of December or thereabouts. And I said, now I know I'm late. If I order this, will it get there? I said, yes, absolutely. It's coming on Friday. Was I frustrated? Of course I was frustrated. I paid a great deal of money for it. I wanted him to have this wonderful surprise gift. Didn't come. So you hand it over to the Lord and you leave it. Now having said all of that by way of introduction, we'll be returning to these principles during Psalms and Proverbs together. So let's get into the psalm itself. Now, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, there's a classification of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Now, there's also Psalms of Lament, there's Messianic Psalms, there's Royal Psalms, there's all sorts of Psalms. But those who are called the Psalms of Ascent happen and were written by pilgrims. Pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem from all over Israel, and you are educated enough in biblical studies to know that Jerusalem's 500 feet above sea level, and when the pilgrims gather and make their way up towards Jerusalem, they begin in their mind to envisage what it's like to enter into the temple. They are anticipating a time of worship and intimacy with God. They can't wait to get to the climax of their journey and bring with them, and you'll see them here, bring with them offerings for the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Harvest Thanksgiving. And those events typically happen around the fall each year, autumn time, mid-October, and most of the Psalms of Ascent were written from that kind of background. As the families gather together, make their way, and in their mind, as I said moments ago, they're anticipating experiencing God himself in the temple. And so some would suggest that Psalm 84 is very similar to the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to see that, and I think that's uh, fair. But it's also similar to Psalm 42 and 43. Now, I suspect some of you will recognize Psalm 42 and 43 immediately because the words are so familiar. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet 
with God. So here's my question. When was the last time your heart and mind and soul were so preoccupied with him it was like a deep, insatiable thirst that you could not quench? In quiet moments of prayer, or perhaps a Sunday morning when the lyrics of a particular hymn have touched you deeply and profoundly, and you find your heart and soul soaring heavenwards, and you are engaged with him and the people around you, husband, wife, children, people in front, folks at the back, what's happening at the front, just becomes obscured because you are in deep communion with him. That's what's going on here. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God. That overwhelming longing, desire, thirst for him and his presence. Wouldn't you like a little more of that in the year ahead? Wouldn't you like to find yourself moved deeply when you open up the scriptures in the morning and read them in your daily quiet time? And he moves your heart and mind and soul. That's what's going on here. And so having said Psalm 84 is like the Psalms of Ascent in 42 and 43, let's come to the psalm itself. And the psalmist begins, How lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord Almighty, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And please notice what's happening here. There is here, I think we could say that, wistful, inexpressible longing. He's imagining it in his mind. And I kind of think of the psalmist as moving towards Jerusalem. He begins to look up at the city. He can see the temple. And he's envisaging himself walking through the doors of the temple. And he writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out. That wistful, inexpressible longing. The desire is deep, insatiable. And please note this. He's homesick, not so much for a place, but a person. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. It is God himself he wants more of. Does he have a deep affection and love for the temple and its precincts and all that takes place there? Of course he does. From time to time, I will have couples uh, will call me up and say, Richard, we got married 25 or 30 years ago at First Pres in Greenville. We're going to be back in Greenville next week. Is there any possibility we can go back into the sanctuary just to remind ourselves of what took, took place? I say, of course, please come. And then we show them into the sanctuary. And they say, we stood there and we said this. And, we said, and it's full of love and affection for them. And that's what happens in a place of worship. It happens here on Sunday morning. You can see the chairs there. On Sunday morning coming up, the Sunday's over Christmas, the place was packed with standing room only at times. And there is an affection. Why? For a church canteen? No. It's because God 
had met with them there. It's because God had spoken into their lives. They felt his touch. And they felt his challenge. That's what's going on. Homesick not for a place, but a person. Sometimes people will say to me, Richard, do you ever get homesick for Scotland? And I will say, well, we've kind of been here 15 and a half years or so. And those first seven, eight, ten years were tough, especially at Christmas. Because all of the memories of childhood and wanting to meet with family, that was hard. But it wasn't for a place. It was for the people. Mothers, brothers, sisters. That's what homesickness does. There's that deep, aching wound. And for the psalmist, it's for God himself. And please remember, this is in the Old Testament. There's no indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. There's no gifting of the Holy Spirit. There's no deep abiding intimacy that we have the benefits of having. The deep abiding intimacy was utter trust and faith. We have it so much better. Because, of course, they were looking forward. And in the New Testament, and we're in the New Testament era, we look back to Calvary and they looked forward. But we have the benefits of the Holy Spirit, of course. So here is the psalmist, homesick for God himself. And notice, let me quickly make a point before I go on. Top line, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. There is that spontaneous act of worship. Now you've been with us often enough on Wednesday nights to know that I have a favourite quote on worship. And I teach a course to undergraduate, excuse me, postgraduate ordinance for the denomination. And the course I teach is on reformed worship. And I use this quote all the time, and I've used it on Wednesday nights, and some of you are fed up with me using it, but it's the best definition of worship I've come across. And there are many out there, but this is still at the top of my list. Worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, all this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable that's worship that's adoration that's praise sometimes on a Sunday morning some of you will say to me afterwards later in the course of the week Richard when so and so sang on Sunday morning my eyes filled up with tears because a wonderful singer partly because of spectacular music partly but it was because of who the music and the message was focused on. That's worship. That's what it means. My heart and soul cry out for the living God. That's what spontaneous worship is. And the psalmist goes on. He's been envisaging the temple. He's been imagining what it would be like. He steps into the temple precincts and he writes, 
Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And that comes, of course, from verses 3 and 4. Having put them up there, I highlighted a number of words in blue and I've underlined them quite deliberately so they stand out. So when the psalmist goes into the temple precincts and begins to understand the climax of his journey, he looks around and looks up into the rafters and says, Oh, I see a sparrow. I found a home. Over in this corner, a swallow, a nest for herself. Now notice a home. A dwelling place. A permanent residence. It's not a hostel. It's not a hotel where you enjoy a long weekend. But it's a home. A place where the sparrow will raise her own chicks. Where those chicks will be fed and nourished and grow and mature and gain strength. A swallow, a nest where she'll put her wings around them. And watch birth come from eggs where she may have her young, teaching them how to fly, feeding them in those early days. And then we have the picture, a place near your altar. Why does the psalmist put that in there? Because the imagery, the metaphor is changing from a place of nourishment and growth and strength and maturity to a place of sacrifice. To a place where at some point you step up and you surrender and you submit and you say, Thy will be done. Even though I might want it another way. Even though I thought you would take me in this direction and you've taken me in that direction, that was the last thing I wanted. And your hopes and dreams and plans come to an end. And then he whispers to your soul, I have an even better plan for you. An altar, a place of submission and surrender. And then almost blurting out in a passionate heart cry in capital letters, O Lord Almighty. Surrender and submission once again. My King and my God. And then he adds, Blessed are those who dwell in in your house. They are ever praising you. Now let me pause for a second as he's lost in this heartfelt devotion, I think after a few minutes it's so intense, so real, that he pauses, takes a breath, and looks around, remembering exactly where he is, and he sees priests guiding pilgrims, some changing the oil in the oil lamp, some on the far side, brushing the area, some helping pilgrims choose what they're about to offer as sacrifices. And as he sees them, he thinks, gosh, what I would give to give up 
my everyday life and serve right here in the temple. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. And yet, he almost never asks us to leave the life we have and go and live in a sanctuary somewhere. Almost never does that. Some of us have the enormous privilege of doing that day by day. But very few. Because he knows this. That when Christians live out their faith in the messiness and distraction of everyday life, working in construction, working in retail, teaching in class, a lawyer's office or a dentist's office, an engineer's office, perhaps in theatre, law, medicine, finance, wherever we are living out our faith, there are the hands and feet of Christ impacting people around us. And so in this instant of devotion, of course he admires those who have that enormous privilege. But I suspect he also knows what it means to live out his faith every day. And then he adds, they are ever praising you. Then you have that strange word, Selah. If you look at your Bible, what you're going to discover is that physically this psalm comes in three sections. And there are two words, Selah, they're repeated, comes in, let me turn it up the other way so I can tell you exactly where they come in. Comes in at verse 4 and then again after verse 8. Old Testament scholars are not quite sure what that Hebrew word means. They're sure of the word. They're just not sure what it means. And if you look at the top of, uh, excuse me, after it says Psalm 84, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, For the director of music, according to Githith, the sons of Korah, a psalm. For the director of music. In other words, the psalm was used in public adoration and worship. And the word selah often means Pause, consider, think, take a breath. So, for example, when he gets to the end of verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. Basically, what he's saying is this. How about that? How about that? That's what it means to worship. And so, he then moves us on. And he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Isn't that a great beginning to a new year? Blessed are those whose strength is not in themselves, not in their circumstances, not in the situation that they're living in, but blessed are those whose strength is in you, not themselves. Ever tried to accomplish something after praying about it and praying about it and praying about it? You've tried to accomplish it in your own strength? Well, good luck with that. My experience is it usually doesn't work out. But if I leave it in his hands and attempt to follow his call and be obedient to his call, then the blessing comes and then the strength comes and then the faithfulness of God is at work. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. And the word blessed I've left in blue because it appears three times in this psalm. Verse 4, almost wistfully. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. It appears again in verse 5, and there it has more of a feel of resolutely. And then verse 12, it comes with deep contentment, and we'll touch on that when we get there. And so when a biblical author is repeating a single word, pay attention. What is he telling us? What is he drawing your attention to? Pause, slow down long enough to grasp what he means. Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have their hearts set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. Baca was a dry, arid, desert area in ancient Israel. Not much life, but here is the psalmist saying, often pilgrims come through it on their way to Jerusalem. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. So how is it possible in the midst of this arid place where there is very little nourishment, where there is very little renewing, very little refreshment going on? How is it possible they make it a place of springs? Well, they make it a place of springs because of the first verse. Blessed are those whose strength is what? In you. That's where the strength comes from. That's where the renewal comes from. That's where the refreshment comes from. It comes from him. And then they go on. And the psalmist moves from the devotional thought in his heart and soul to the very real practical picture of a typical fall. In ancient Israel, the autumn rain also covers it with pools, and they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Where does the strength come from? Well, he's told us at the beginning, strength is in you. We feed devotionally, spiritually, transformed by our time with him. Remember at the beginning we said transformation It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not something, or at least real transformation, doesn't come easily. It's painful. It's inconvenient. Uncomfortable. But it's always healthy when he's in the midst of it all. And then he takes us on to this final section where he says, excuse me, not quite the final section. We're coming towards the end of that middle section. And he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. And then there's a break. Selah. Pause. Think. Consider. As we said. And then strangely, what we see next is this. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. So what is going on there? It was, hear my prayer. Strengthen me. You are my king, my God. 
And then the language changes from first person singular, hear my prayer, O Lord Almighty. That's that heart, heart passion again. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. And then he adds, look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. And the focus shifts from himself to someone else. And who is the someone else? Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Who is he speaking of? Ever found yourself in prayer? Someone comes to your mind and you think, Oh, I ought to call so-and-so. Oh, I need to text them. Oh, I need to be in touch. Gosh. And then later you'll text them and say something along the lines of, You know, you came to mind earlier today. I just wanted to check in and make sure you're fine. That's what's going on here. Now, I would have to tell you that sometimes, usually the first three or four minutes when I settle down to pray each morning, it's not that other people come to mind. It's that Satan will distract me. You forgot to call this one. You forgot to email that one. Later today, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do the next thing. And initially, I used to think that's my most productive time when I need to, and then I discovered it's not my most productive time. It's just a distraction, and I'm not settling down to prayer. I'm settling down to an agenda I have to fulfill. And actually, what's happening is those moments of devotion and adoration become less and less because I'm focused on the pragmatism of who I need to contact and what I need to do. Prayer is not about creating a task list of things to do that day. But here the psalmist is saying, look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. And I think I could say with some credence that the psalmist is praying for himself. Oh, And then he remembers, and this language would suggest to pray for the king, probably David. And he says, look upon our shield who protects them as a nation, who looks after them as a country. Oh God, look with favor in your anointed one, the leadership you have put in place. That's what I think is going on here. Old Testament scholars are a little ambivalent about it, but many would come uh, to that conclusion and say, yep, that's what's happening here. And then finally, he moves to this final section and he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Occasionally, someone will say to me, especially folks I haven't seen for a long time, uh, especially colleagues in ministry, will say to me, Richard, I can't wait till I get to heaven. I can't wait to see you there. And I kind of push back a little and say, you're not going to see me. I'll be way at the back giving out the hymn books. And what I know of you is you will be right at the front. And it doesn't really matter where you are in heaven. What matters is you're there. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Better is one day in your courts, in your presence, exposed to your love, transformed by your grace, excited because we will have all of eternity. All of eternity. And then he adds, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Earlier we talked about that besetting sin. That habit that sometimes pulls you away. 
You find yourself being so critical of others. You find yourself being cynical. You'd rather put someone down than lift them up. That's what it means to dwell in the tent of the wicked. One of my resolutions this year, and I hadn't intended telling you this, and I tend not to do this in January, but I caught myself probably Monday not being as gentle as I should when interacting with others. And I did not get peace on that on Monday night. On Tuesday morning in my prayer journal, when I was praying yesterday morning, I said, Father, help me to be gentle. Help me to be gracious. Help me to be loving as I interact with others. Not to be demanding. Not to make it all about me and my wants. But to make it about them and bring them forward in their faith. And it's so easy to excuse poor habits, bad behavior, it's just the way I am. Really. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And then he adds, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. A sun does what? It brings warmth. Ask any doctor and the doctor will tell you, get out in the sun for half an hour every day. Soak up that vitamin D. It does so much good for you. It gives life. It brings health. It's warm and a shield. Not only does he give you life through his created order, but he also shields you from areas you don't need to be involved in. Then he adds, the Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold. Now, that's a verse we like, isn't it? No good thing does he withhold. And you're thinking... Actually, Richard, that's never been my experience. (laughs) He does hold back his blessing at times. He does show restraint when it comes to blessing us. And here is why. From those whose walk is blameless. It's a two-sided coin. No good thing does he withhold from those who what? Are obedient to him, who follow him, who live for him, who live in submission to his will and his ways, who seek to be able to say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And of course, he finishes almost with identical language the way he began. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the height and depth and width and length of this psalm. Thank you that we have the opportunity to start a new year immersed in your word, encouraged in our love for you, strengthened and equipped in our devotion of you. And for this we thank you. Father, help us please in the year ahead to be ready and obedient to your call upon our lives. To be ready not to be overly focused and caught up with circumstance, but to be focused on you. To let you have your way. To be more willing to see you at work 
in our lives. Grant to us, please, the discernment we need to be like the psalmist and be able to say, our hearts and souls cry out for you, O Lord Almighty. Bless us, please, this week and in all the year that lies ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.